so how did how did this whole movie come about? Because it's definitely an, an interesting movie, and it doesn't it's it's kind of hard to put into words when I try to describe it to people. So it definitely has to have some kind of interesting story about how it all came together. Well, you'll you'll be the judge of that. Um, <laughs> I, I did several cult films when I lived in New York City, Slime City being one of them. When I moved to Buffalo, I switched gears to become an author, and I, I wrote like 12 horror novels. And through that work, I became aware of Richard Chismar, who uh, co-wrote the, the book. And Richard is the owner of Cemetery Dance Publications, which does a lot of limited editions of Stephen King's, a lot of prestige, deluxe hardcover books. And uh, he's quite a force in the publishing world. And quite out of the blue, I was looking for some financing for one of my films. I think it was Slime City Massacre, the sequel to Slime City. And he just contacted me and said, oh, I'd love to support you. Can I invest some money? So he invested money in several of my super low-budget films over the years, and we always discussed that we would like to do something together, something that maybe he would write and I would direct. Well, he's very busy. He co-wrote a book with Stephen King, and uh, he started sending me uh, some of his stories to consider as as possible low-budget films. And Widow's Point, which he co-wrote with his son Billy, who's a college student, was the first one that grabbed me because when I read it, I could see the sing the the single location of the lighthouse being something that could possibly be done. That's really what led to this particular. Are you still there? Mike, Mike, Mike. Yeah, there we go. Me? Sorry, we uh, we got a storm rolling <laughs> through here, so we're our connection just went out for a second. It's Sorry, funny, I have one here. I have one here as well. So, did you lose all that? Because no, I got uh, I got to the end where you uh, were talking about the uh, the location for the lighthouse, and that's where right. I think right. you were wrapping up that sentence, and then we had about a ten second uh, uh, blank there. I merely summarized that that's what led to this being our first uh, collaboration. Okay. Uh, Caitlin said that the, the location shoots were actually two separate locations. Uh, was that out of necessity, or was that just because one just kind of worked out better than the other for an interior shot? Well, the story is obviously set in a lighthouse, and the lighthouse that I chose is in the uh, city of Dunkirk which is an hour south of Buffalo. It's actually a, a place where I lived as a child. So that's what made me think of that one. But the downside was that the interior of the lighthouse keeper quarters, the house connected to the tower, was actually a veterans museum, you know, full of glass cases and displays of uh, military memorabilia and uniforms and stuff. And it was actually for that reason that Fred Olin Ray decided not to shoot another lighthouse movie at that location but i really wanted that exterior so we decided to go with that for the exterior and the stairs leading up into the tower and the catwalk of the tower and then go to a separate house to be the interior of the lighthouse keeper quarters so we would drive an hour 
to location every day for the lighthouse and we only had to drive half an hour for this house but then on top of that we also built a set for the main room where Craig Shepherd spends much of the much of the film and that's because in every lighthouse I've been in that little room underneath the lantern house is usually about six feet tall and very confined and we could never have uh, shot an entire film in one of those rooms uh, did any of those uh, on location, uh, when filming on location, some of those, did, did they pose any kind of uh, restrictions aside from, of course, your, your ceiling height and cramped quarters, but was there anything else that kind of, uh, that tried to hinder, hinder your process of making this movie? The lighthouse location itself turned out to be fantastic. I shoot most of my movies in the summer. It's just when I prefer to make movies. But because of that, we always seem to wind up in classrooms or apartments with no air conditioning or that shoot up to 100 degrees as soon as you turn the air conditioning off. And that lighthouse, we had the run of the ground. So it was really nice. Um, there was some weird electrical activity, I believe, because of the uh, the weather equipment attached to the tower. Um the lighthouse does have a reputation as being a haunted lighthouse. They do the ghost tours there all the time and tell the stories. Uh, a few of the crew members had creepy moments. I never did. I'm, I'm no fun that way. I'm, I'm not a believer in, in paranormal activity. Um, but the only restriction that we were faced with is that it was the, the, the lighthouse has the only working lens, the thing that turns around and creates the light, uh, I think in New York State, and it's worth tens of thousands of dollars so we weren't allowed to go anywhere near that but all in all um, that location was very pleasant to shoot at now the house that doubled for it uh, i was lucky to get some friends of mine uh, had bought a large house to rehab and turn into a bed and breakfast so we got in there before they rehabbed it but unfortunately the windows wouldn't open there was no air conditioning and the second floor where we shot the kids bedroom I'm not kidding. It was over 100 degrees, and uh, the whole place reeked of capus. So it was, it was the opposite of the lighthouse. It was the most unpleasant location I've ever been at. But did it did it add that little extra oomph that you needed to get the to get the, the uh, <laughs> to get the performances you needed out of your actors? Um, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I will say that the. Uh, <laughs> The children's room that you see in the film where the two kids in the 1930s flashback uh, sleep, the, what you see is almost exactly what was there with the matching wallpaper and bed covers and the antique children's toys. So we didn't have to spend a dime on uh, art direction for that, which was really good because we had no money to spend on art direction. How do you go about in indie filmmaking stretching that dollar to make it to make the most of it? Well, this is the eighth film I've done, and uh, I'd like my budgets to be going up, but they seem to be uh, plateauing at about that $250,000 level. You find different ways to shorten your shooting schedule, basically. Um, you know, the more professional actors you want to work with, obviously, that eats a dent into it. It gets harder and harder, especially in my area in Buffalo. Um, we've seen a real resurgence in film production you know, the last five or six years, and a lot of the crew members have, have gone into the union and now work on some of the bigger shows when they come to town. So it's a lot harder for me 
to stretch a dollar if I want to keep working with the same people. I I think I'm going to find myself in a position where I have to start working with uh, younger and more inexperienced uh, crew people to to make that dollar stretch if I keep working at at this budget level. Uh, Something that came up in a discussion I was having with some other other reviewers was we're seeing a lot of, like, these local schools, these local quote-unquote film schools are really pushing advertising hard to, like, come here, spend four years, maybe $100,000 and get a film degree. (laughs) Would you say that's a wise idea or would it be better for these people that look to get into the industry to look for jobs on small indie productions and get in that way, even if it's something basic, just either helping the electrician or helping the sound guy on a very basic level and then build up a resume that way? I think it really depends on what you want to do. If you know you're not likely to be a writer and director, and that you don't have any use for film theory and film history, that you're going to be part of the grip department, part of the camera crew, if you really want to be a cinematographer. While film school won't hurt you, it's certainly better to get on set, start as a PA, make those relationships, work your way up. Um, I think uh, a lot of people come right out of uh, getting their bachelor's degree in film school and go get the same PA positions that somebody with no film background does. And, you know, just from listening to commentary tracks and watching documentaries, there's a lot you can learn. But nothing beats on-set experience. I went to film school for one year. I went to the School of Visual Arts in New York City. I found that I was spending way too much money and way too much time on classes that weren't related to film itself. And I decided not to go back. And the first film I worked on was a 1984 film called I Was a Teenage Zombie. And I was the production manager on that. I didn't even know what a production manager was because I didn't take that second year of film school. Uh, But I took the position. I worked for free. And in that month of shooting and probably the month leading up to it, I learned as much in those eight weeks, um, making no money, but not paying for tuition as I did in the, the preceding year of film school. All that being said, there is value in film school, especially if you want to learn about screenwriting, about film theory, about working with other people. Uh, But the the expense of tuition has gotten insane. So unless uh, mommy and daddy are rich and you're not going to spend the rest of your life in uh, debt, uh, you might want to look at just going on sets and getting experience. Uh, you said that in Buffalo, it looks like the uh, the film market's starting to pick up. Uh, do you see that increasing over once we get out of this funk that we're in? Uh, do you see it shooting um, up, or or how do you uh, foresee that going? I'm positive it's the case. Uh, we've, we've increased the number of union workers here, and when big films come here, one of the deterrents has been that there weren't enough union people so that they would have to bring in a lot of union people of their own and put them up in hotels. And that's not so much the case anymore. And uh, Robert Helmy, who's a very successful producer, has committed to building a a new soundstage facility, which supposedly will be open a year from September. And the one thing that we're missing in our area is a TV series, and Helmy does produce TV series. So I see something happening in that direction. I honestly think that once we get past this pandemic, a lot of um, studios are going to be looking for less congested places to shoot. And I think we're actually primed 
to be one of those places that take off. Doesn't help me at all. I'm not really interested in being a crew on larger films. I'd, I'd rather keep making my own. But it's good to see all the people I work with, you know, in a good position to to get more and better paying work. Uh, something that uh, I was discussing with Caitlin a little bit earlier was there's a lot of places in New York, in upstate New York, that just don't seem to ever be used, even though they have so much atmosphere. Uh, my wife's from Ithaca. And every time we've gone up there, I'm like, why is this place not utilized for anything as far as filming is concerned? I mean, you have such diverse locations. You have you have just open fields where you can do your, your slasher thing. You've got you've got the downtown area by by uh, Cornell that could be used for a lot of different things. I I'm not sure if it's it's a price thing or if people just don't want to be outside of their comfort zone. But uh, like from where I'm from, Tampa. There's so many places to film, but production companies will actually build an entire city block of Tampa in Louisiana <laughs> just because it's slightly cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been to Ithaca. I, I had a fascinating couple of trips there um, <laughs> to visit someone at Cornell. And I was fascinated by all of the, the farmland and all the uh, terrifying amount of roadkill and deer, dead deer on the road on the way to get there. Uh, that's a real pretty city, and it would be a great location for some scenes at, at like a college town. The the hills are probably uh, a turnoff to, to production folks, but you're right. There are places all over up New York, and as the uh, film tax credit took off here, I know that the governor's office was encouraging more and more uh, production now. A team of people on stage, and it's a full production company. And at this, I think if you look at that and the the studio that Ron Perlman helped build in Syracuse, and these studios we have coming here in Buffalo, I think people are looking for alternatives outside uh, L.A. and New York City proper. Uh, the same thing is going on in Canada. I, I noticed uh, a lot of the artistic community that I've gotten to know in Toronto have relocated to Hamilton, which is like an hour and 15 minutes away from Buffalo, and it's a very similar blue-collar city. But they, ju they just started work on, uh, I think, eight sound stages there, and the Umbrella Ca Academy was filmed in Hamilton. So you're finding these these major cities are getting so crowded with production that I think uh, studios are looking for smaller cities with s small towns around them that can be utilized. Is there any city in particular where you'd uh, like to film something like like you had a passion project and you needed the specific look or the specific town? Well, I shot my first three films in uh, New York City, and I certainly love New York, but it's difficult to shoot there. I've got some books that uh, have been optioned by uh, George Mahalka, who's a Canadian producer. He directed the original um, My Bloody Valentine. And I know he's based in Hamilton. So for the sake of a career with a TV series, I would very much love to film in Hamilton or uh, uh, Montreal. Uh, if you need a giant soundstage... Uh... <laughs> 
I was up in Vancouver uh, for a Netflix thing, and the new Skydance facility, they they bought a paper mill, an old paper mill, and they converted it into a soundstage. And some of the stages they used were roughly like close to maybe 10 stories tall. <laughs> so if you ever need a giant production facility, I would say use Skydance. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy how impressive some of them are. Uh, Don Coscarelli wrote a great book, um, it's called Shooting Indie, Real Indie, and he talks about how for the Phantasm films, he has always rented um, warehouses and converted them to sound stages just for those projects. And I worked on a Frank Henenlotter film back in 87 called Brain Damage, and that's basically what we did. We converted three floors of a, of a warehouse building into a sound stage, an office space, and an FX lab. So, I mean, you can really whip anything into shape if you have a little bit of money and a lot of time and somebody who's got some carpentry skills. But, yeah, it would be wonderful to shoot in an actual sound stage with, with a cafeteria and all the amenities. Uh, here in Buffalo, we do a lot of that work at a, a PBS, or WNED, sound stage. And to get qualified for the tax credit, you have to shoot one day on a certified sound stage. So you sort of structure your projects around having that one set for that one day. And that's the day everyone loves because that's when the actors have dressing rooms and we all get to eat lunch in the cafeteria. And it's a nice uh, break from the otherwise uh, indie conditions that, that we deal with on uh, shoots that go anywhere from 12 to 18 days. So with that tax credit, it's actually like eight to 12 hours shooting. So it doesn't even include any of any of the set design or building the sets. You, it's actually filming is what gets you that credit. Well, it, re it requires you to shoot the one day, the eight hours, eight hours of filming, not just loading in and loading out. But when you do the application, there are different columns. So you apply all the costs that went into building that set. So the design and the carpentry and stuff would come in to play there just in terms of how you report how you report it, but everything is qualified. You get a total of, depending on your budget, 30 to 40% of your whole budget other than above the line figures. Um, what are your, what are some of your uh, words of wisdom that you would give to other indie filmmakers that are kind of starting now or until everything was put on hold, we're trying to uh, figure out how, what what kind of avenues they wanted to take for getting their films made, what would you say to them? Pick your key people carefully because mm -hmm. you really want to depend on each other and you don't want any wild cards. You want reliable <clears throat> people that are going to show up whether you're paying them or not. And if you're working with people as a team, meaning a writer, a producer, a director, if you're not wearing all those hats yourself, make sure you have a written agreement between you, even if it's a simple letter introduction, because it will save friendships down the road. If everything's spelled out, who's entitled to what, who has what say. Um, usually when you get a bunch of people together to make their, their first micro-budget film, the last people to have an agreement are those key creative people. And, you know, the film can drag on for a year, things can happen, hurt feelings, and the next thing you know, the rest of the cast and the crew have to, like, choose sides, like when a, a mar married couple gets divorced and their, their <laughs> friends have to decide who to go, go with. So really have a written agreement no matter what, no matter how small the production. 
All right, Greg. Uh, my last question uh, is the most important one. Uh, where and when will people be able to see uh, Widow's Point? Widow's Point will be will be available September 1st on VOD and DVD, and the DVD will be available in Walmarts across the country. And I believe that the book is uh, readily available on Amazon, both uh, paperback and Kindle, I believe. Yeah, and there's probably a limited edition hardcover out there somewhere, um, but it's definitely available, and uh, hopefully people will check them out and compare the two. I've been getting a lot of good feedback on the film, but I'm really curious to see how the the fans of the book take to some of the changes I make for the film. I've never had that experience before. Uh, I'm, I'm sure if people are going to be vocal about it, you'll see, you'll see posts everywhere come September. Well, it'll it'll be interesting because large sections of the movie are taken like almost verbatim from the book, and then there's stuff that I made up myself. Like the ending, the ending is mine completely. the The book has a very ambiguous ending that works for fiction, but wouldn't necessarily work for a movie. And I'm sort of known for goofy horror films, so the the ending definitely is all me. Oh yeah, there's no ambiguity with that ending. That definitely was that was pretty concrete. <laughs> forgive the pun but yeah there was a yeah that that was a yeah i had no questions when i saw the end of it i was like yep that's uh that's it's over 